Your view of God is of absolute importance. Who you are, how you live, and what you will become is organically related to who you know God to be. A wrong or inferior view of God renders a person dangerously out of sync with reality. A right view of God orients us to reality and empowers us to experience abundant life. There may be nothing more determinative about who you are than how you view God. So, who is God to you? Many in our day would interpret this question as a primarily subjective one. Well, based on my experience, I see God as, or I feel that God is, and while God intends for us to walk with Him in experiential joy, let us rejoice together as a church today that we have in Scripture an objective self-revelation of God. We can rejoice that our view of God is not limited to our experiences and to our feelings, but that we may rest in faith upon what God declares about Himself. And when we do, when we truly believe God is who He reveals Himself to be, we can do anything He calls us to do and become anyone He wants us to be. An aging shepherd begins to learn this vital lesson as he watches over his flock, the desert sun beating down upon his head. He's Moses, the Hebrew infant who was rescued from the Nile River in Egypt by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted into her family. He is Moses who became the great Egyptian warrior, a highly educated, highly distinguished member of Pharaoh's own household. He is Moses who decided to relinquish his Egyptian privileges to identify with the enslaved people of God. He is Moses who, because of a rash act against an Egyptian taskmaster, was forced to flee Egypt and to hide as a fugitive in the desert of Sinai. He is Moses, now a lowly shepherd, who has long ago abandoned all ambition for leadership over his fellow Israelites. He is Moses, who experiences over the past four decades a dulled sense of who God really is. And while this aging shepherd watches his sheep in the desert, things have gotten no better back in Egypt where Moses' people continue to languish in slavery. But there is a word of hope at chapter 2 and verse 23. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. God knows it was a long period. The king of Egypt dies, that is, the man who wanted Moses dead is dead. And it begins to turn the narrative toward the eventual deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Reading at verse 23, following the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. This is not to say Israel's previous prayers over many generations had not been heard. 
It is only to say that these prayers were heard and that the time was right for God to act upon them now. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Or literally, he knew them. It says here that God remembered them. This is in the Semitic sense of the term. It's not that God had forgotten them, but in the Oriental sense of the terminology, God chooses to act upon his covenant. When the word remember is used, it is often with that sense that God is beginning to act and to work. Six centuries earlier, God had made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And as we have reviewed a bit from Genesis, and as we look at that phrase here in the text, this should really stand out to us. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who made the promise to Abraham of an offspring and of a land. God remembers his promise. He remembers his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In chapter 15 of Genesis, we read there of God's promise to Abraham that Israel would be in Egypt for 400 years. The time has come. God is remembering in the sense of acting and initiating on the basis of his promise. God always keeps his promises. This means the word God spoke to Abraham would directly affect this generation of enslaved Hebrews. And as Bible readers, as Christians, we need to read the Bible in that way. We do not read the Bible to say that every instruction and every word is directly applicable to us, but we read it in the sense that we are part of the stream of God's people. And so the promises of God in the past come true in the present we hold to those promises and know that God will keep his word. So after four long centuries, experience indicated what? Feelings indicated what? They indicated nothing but that God had long ago abandoned Israel. He was nowhere to be found. 400 years since we've been here. And what has God done? Everything has gone worse for us. It seems with every passing generation, the story just gets worse. It all started real well with Joseph, but God is gone. He has forgotten his people, it would seem, on the basis of experience. But God forgets no one. He never forgets his people. He never forgets his promises. And as God cut a covenant with Abraham that passed through to Isaac and on to Jacob, God had started something, and he's going to complete it. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and he looked on the Israelites, a key phrase through this paragraph. The time had come in God's plan for the Israeli slaves to leave Egypt, which brings us back to the Sinai Desert and that shepherd. Moses, verse 1 of chapter 3, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Just to get our bearings here, if we could look at the map here and look to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Moses has made his way from Egypt across to the east to escape from Pharaoh. And he finds himself down in the southern portion of the Sinai Peninsula. 
Believe me, this is not a place you go for vacation. This is rough territory. It is desert. It is not pretty here. No one is going to come looking for Moses here. He's safe. He's been safe for 40 years. But it is here that he builds his family and shepherds his father-in-law's sheep. Jethro, we find mentioned here in verse 1, is, is found in verse 18 of chapter 2 as Ruel. I think it's just the same man, different title or name for him. And Moses comes to, you note here in verse 1, to Horeb, which is re- referred to as the mountain of God. It will be called Mount Sinai in chapter 16. It is a prominent summit that rises from the desert floor toward the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. There is said to be, in uh, one commentator mentioned, that there are Bedouins today in this very region that refer to one of these peaks as Moses Mountain. So there's a long uh, history and knowledge of the place where Moses met with God near this mountain and where the Israelites will meet with God later. We read at verse 2 that there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. It was not entirely uncommon for the scrub bushes of this region to ignite in fire, we're told. It could be through a lightning strike or a, a shepherd's fire. Sometimes even the heat was so high and the bush so tender, so dry, that sometimes they would just actually catch fire in the, in the sun. So it's not entirely unusual that there's a bush on fire in the desert, but Moses, looking closer, realizes that the bush doesn't stop burning. It just keeps on burning, and this is quite unusual. In reality, the flames of fire were the presence of the angel of Yahweh, the Lord. You notice there, and it's important to see this, that the angel of the Lord there in verse 2, in most English translations, I'm not aware of one that doesn't have this unless it translates the word Yahweh, but you'll notice there a capital L and then smaller capitals O-R-D. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh, as far as we can tell. We're not sure of the pointing or of the vowels with this word, but the Hebrew word Yahweh, whenever you see Lord in those letters, that's referring to Yahweh, and that is a, a crucial reference to his name here at the beginning of this account as he uh, confronts Moses and calls Moses. So Yahweh is in the bush, and Moses wonders what on earth is going on, so he investigates. He's just beginning to learn of God's power over nature. As is true of all biblical miracles, this was not a fireworks display for Moses' entertainment. It was a miraculous sign intended to accredit his mission and the message that God would now give. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, that is speaking of God in human terms, he waits, in other words, till Moses comes over to this place. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. We note the angel of Yahweh, interestingly, here in verse 2, is called God in verse 4. He is the angel, the word means messenger, of Yahweh in verse 2. And yet in verse 4, it is God who is calling out from within the bush. It's an interesting point. The angel 
is distinct from God, verse 2, but is God in verse 4. And he calls out to Moses. Moses answered in verse 5, God then speaks saying, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now in the East, taking off one's sandals or shoes is a sign of reverence. It's roughly equivalent to taking one's hat off in the West, though we're, we're losing that tradition, I think. But it was a, it's a sign of respect, of reverence. Now think about where he is. He's in one ugly stretch of land here. But this desert floor with these scrub brushes in the middle of nowhere has just become holy ground. It is holy because God stands there. And so he says, take your shoes off, Moses. You stand in the presence of the Lord. God's presence transforms this lowly ground into holy ground. God was there, and God was teaching Moses that God must be approached reverently. He is preparing Moses for what? He's preparing him to understand that the approach to God must be taken carefully and cautiously and reverently. We must come to God on God's terms. Right now, it's just the bare sand under Moses' bare feet. There will be a day not long when it will be a tabernacle out here where Moses will meet with God. And he begins to prepare his leader to understand you come to God on his terms and in his way and with utter reverence. In the big picture, God is moving to save Israel from Egyptian bondage. What does God say to Moses as he begins now to speak to the deliverer of his people? Take your sandals off. We start with worship. Then verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Note the direct connection to chapter 2 and verse 24. God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and reveals himself immediately to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sounds like God's still dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, doesn't it? He's not done with his promise with them. It's still in operation. Moses' reaction is, as could be understood, fear. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The presence of God terrified him. In the future, Moses would become more bold in God's presence, but at this stage in his spiritual journey, the thought of seeing God terrifies him. It's not a bad place to start as one develops an understanding of God, a place of fear. We live in a culture and a time when the evangelical church believes that it, the only place to meet God is in comfort. God has a very different view, often. There are times when people do meet God in comfort. They meet Him in times of great crisis and He puts His arm around them and pulls them to Himself. But we need to also remember that many times the appropriate initial meeting with God is one of fear to know that he is great and highly exalted. Moses fears God. This is how God initiates with his leader. 
He will become more bold in the presence of God. But now he needs to learn to fear him. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Again, we see here that fearing God is not incompatible with His compassion. I hear the cry of my people. I see their misery. And yet there is Moses quaking with fear in the presence of this great God. And mirroring the verbs of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, God informs Moses of a divine plan. God was promising to rescue Israel from Egypt, and very soon... And God was promising to bring Israel into the promised land. That was extraordinarily good news. God was coming down. When that phrase is used in Scripture, it is often saying that He is coming down to meet a need. He's coming down to initiate a course. Israel would soon be marching up to Canaan. God comes down and Israel comes up to a land of milk and honey, an idiom of agricultural fertility and the gift of God to His people Israel. And that brings God to the immediate situation in verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. To this point, Moses is happily tracking with every word of God. I've seen that misery. I know the oppression. I grew up in it. I remember this, and it is wonderful to know that God is coming. But now God throws a curveball at him, as it were. What he says next changes Moses' perspective entirely. He says in verse 10, So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, it was all fine when we were talking about somebody and about a need. But now God begins to talk to Moses and says, I want you to be the leader in this deliverance. He will be the means by which God delivers Israel from slavery. I think we've all been in Moses' spot from time to time. We really would rather that God did what he was going to do without us. We'd rather that he just went around and did it and got it done and not include us in all the hard work and the difficulty of it and the danger and the concern. But God works through his people in his own time and way. This is certainly not a calling that Moses sought, is it? As is common with Old Testament calling narratives, Moses is simply going about his daily business with no sense that God is on the move. God is not responding to Moses' application for service. He's not impressed with Moses' credentials or ministry experience. He has been making him and molding him and developing him to learn how to handle himself in Pharaoh's court and to learn how to handle himself in the desert. No question about that. But he's not responding to Moses' credentials and ministry experience and saying, you know what, I think we can use you here. Moses is sitting there. We'll just fill in a little blank. We might be a little off, but he's basically sitting there on a rock watching his sheep. God shows up in the middle of nowhere and says, I want you to go and deliver Israel from Egypt. 
He's minding his own business, but God has other plans. And at verse 11, God begins to prepare his deliverer for service. So he calls him to this great task in these first 10 verses and now begins to prepare his deliverer at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? It's a good question and they really need to deal with this question. Who am I to do this work? Forty years ago, Moses was overflowing with self-confidence for the job. But now he sees his insufficiency to fulfill such a mission. Who am I, Moses asks, with sincerity, I think. The fact that God ignores Moses' question is a message in itself. He never answers that question. It's not even worth addressing. Who am I? The issue is, who is God? Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. Think of that exchange. We don't know if there's some words in there that we've missed, but who am I? God says, I'm going to be with you. (laughs) It's saying, Moses, you're nobody, and it doesn't make any difference. I'm going to go with you. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the greatness and the power of our God. You would be hard-pressed to find individuals on this earth that you could stack up against Moses as a great man. I heard the account of a a rabbi here in the Twin Cities who was talking to a Gentile who student of Moses in the Hebrew text, and he said to him, you Gentiles have no idea how great Moses was. I think he's right. I would guarantee, very possible at least, that not one of us will ever meet anybody greater. It's all inherent with him, with his training, and with what's in his heart and his character. God knows this man will be used mightily. But he says, who am I? God ignores the question and says, I will be with you. And that's all you need to know. I will be with you. That is all that matters God does not build up Moses' self-esteem. And he could, couldn't he? Come on, Moses. You've got to understand this here. You've been in Pharaoh's court for 40 years. I don't have a whole lot of Israelites I can get into Pharaoh's court and they'll know what to do. You know the protocol. You've been there. You've seen the whole situation. I send you back to Pharaoh's court. You know right where to walk, right what to do, how to speak. Listen, Moses, all we got to do is get rid of this clothing here. Get you back into Egyptian garb and you'll be right on your way. You're really ready for this. Believe me, it's just going to be like riding a bike. You'll get back on. You'll know how to wield the influence and the power and how to get your way in Moses' court. Come on, Moses. You're really up to this. How silly that sounds, doesn't it? Because we know what God's going to do with Moses. It's not about Moses. It's about God. Yet this message goes on in our land constantly. I was sitting in a very prominent church in Chicago a couple of years ago. The sermon included the reference to Peter walking on water to meet Jesus. And the conclusion of the sermon on that point was that Jesus rebuked Peter for lack of faith. What we need to understand is that his lack of faith was a lack of faith in himself. And what Jesus was teaching Peter was, if you trusted yourself enough, 
you'd be able to walk to me on the water. Peter, learn to trust yourself. I wanted to throw up, honestly. And what dishonor that is to our God. And yet, as I talked to others later, they were just so thrilled with this new insight into the text of Scripture. When God calls a person, when God desires to use one of his people, he does not give us a long lecture on how good we are and how important we are to his cause. He just tells us, I will be with you. The issue is not who you are, Moses. The issue is who I am. I will be with you. Moses would come to understand better the utter importance of this promise. And as you know the accounts, as you consider them, think of it. The importance of the presence of God to Moses becomes very precious and very real. And it empowers him. And it reminds us of the tremendous danger that is in our day and in our own hearts as we rebel against God so easily. That is the danger to not want God around. Whether it be for sin in our life or whether it be just simple apathy, there are many times we really don't want God's presence because we really don't want to be pushed to do something we don't want to do. When God uses people, he calls them to himself and says, I will be with you, and that is enough. Do you want the presence of God? Do you want this God who is there? Who am I? Moses asked God. And now Moses asks him, who are you? I think in respectful terms, I think that he means this very earnestly, but he really asks God, who are you? And so God addresses, first of all, an identity crisis in Moses' life. Who am I? I will be with you. And then he asks, who are you? Verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. He doesn't sound like he's too convinced yet, does he? <laughs> if, I, if I would happen to go to the Israelites, if, if that does in fact take place here, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? We need to understand this. This is not a question about the identity of God. We don't know how to spell his name, or we're not sure what his name is, something like that. What we have here is a typical Semitic way of understanding the word name. It is a request to know of God's character and nature in light of the present situation. It might be put this way, how can we trust that God is able and willing to pull this off? What word can you give us? What handle can you give us that we can hang on to to believe that we are going to be delivered from Egypt? What am I supposed to say to them? God, you've been around all this time, these hundreds of years, and we're still in slavery. We need something to hold on to. They're going to ask me, how do we know? What can we trust? God answers, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I don't think there's any disrespect here. God often, if somebody asks a question such as that, he, he can silence them. 
if it's disrespectful, if it's just a lack of faith, I think Moses simply wants to know, how do I represent you to these people? And he says, I am who I am. I don't believe, as some take it, that God is just not answering him. So simply saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to be who I'm going to be, and don't you worry about it. I don't think that's it. I think that he is saying here, I am is my name. And he ties it directly to that word Yahweh in a moment. We'll look at or verse 14. I am who I am has sent me to you. That is what you are to say. How can we trust that God is able and willing to pull this off? He is the God who is. It comes from the Hebrew word to be. He is the God who is. The emphasis falling on God's existence and on his presence with his people. The God who is, the God who is there, is the same God who was there for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, God is still acting in behalf of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as he delivers Israel from Egypt. And it is by this name that God longs to be known from generation to generation. As he says in verse 15, to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, there is the word Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And that means to us, Yahweh, from that Hebrew word to be, he is, he is active, he is there, he is ever-present, he is with his people. That is him in this situation, and that is him today in our present situation. And I wonder, do we know God in this way? Is he the God who is there in your worldview? Do you see him as ever-alive, ever-present, and ever-active in the promotion of his glory? He is there. God then prophesies Moses' success as he continues to prepare his leader at verse 16 and through the remainder of the chapter. We look at God's orchestrating of what will take place here in the future and assuring Moses of the success of this plan. Verse 16. Now, think here. These are issues that are very much debatable in our day and very significant to our understanding of God and Scripture. But notice how he looks at the future in these verses. Go, he says, verse 16, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the God, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. We notice here again the reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what triggers in God's mind his desire to work here and to act here, to rescue Israel. It is the way he reveals himself to Moses, and now Moses is to reveal God to the Israelites in the same way. I am the God of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see this emphasis on the patriarchs. The God who is is the God who was and the God who ever will be. It is an invitation even to us to place our trust in the God who is there and who acts in behalf of his people. Tell them, I am Yahweh, I am there, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And verse 17, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. There's going to be no question what land he's talking about. And remember, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. I'll bring you back. They will come back. And the elders of Israel will listen to you. Now, God doesn't fill in all the blanks, does he? He doesn't tell Moses that they're not going to listen for very long and that his life is going to be very hard because of these elders in Israel. But he says they will listen to you, and they do. tells us, doesn't it, that God knows the actions of people before they decide to carry out those actions. This means that human beings do not have what some theologians would call freedom of contrary choice. That is, that they are equally able to choose A or B. It's really not the way it is. Human beings act freely, but our freedom is not absolute because it is rendered certain by the foreknowledge of God. There are those who have tremendous problems with that concept. And it is difficult for us to understand on human terms. But our freedom is limited by the fact that God knows ahead what will take place. If that which God foreknows does not come to pass, think of this logically, if that which God foreknows does not come to pass, He did not foreknow it. If what he foreknows must come to pass, then human beings do not have absolute freedom in the absolute sense of the term. They will carry out the game plan. They'll want to do it. They will exercise human freedom. But it will be determined by the foreknowledge of God. Cancel that concept and the idea of God begins to crumble at your feet. If he doesn't foreknow what is to come, then he doesn't foreknow. And the freedom is transferred from God to man. God knows exactly what's going to happen. You're going to go to the elders of Israel and you're going to lay out this plan for them and they will respond positively. It's not a prediction. It's not a guess. It's not figuring out who's going to win the final four. That's not what's going out here. God's saying, I think the elders are probably going to take your word. What is it? It's the foreknowledge of God. Then, verse 18, you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Not sure if this is just a polite way of saying we want to be released from Israel or if this is a deceptive move. I don't think that's probably the case at all because of the way the history plays out. Is it a lesser request that was to be followed by a request for full release later? We're not sure why, but he says, go to Pharaoh and this is where you will start. To ask him just to be released, to go three days into the desert to sacrifice. Whatever the meaning, the outcome is not in doubt. But I know, says God, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. God is not just guessing here. God foreknows all that comes to pass. 
He knows the free choices that people will make. He knows not only how Pharaoh will respond, but precisely how much pressure it will take to get Pharaoh to respond differently. He is not going to let you go until a mighty hand comes down upon him. And so, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God is laying out his knowledge of what will be. He knows, first of all, that Moses will go. If Moses is entirely free to make any decision that he chooses to make, either to go and obey God or not to obey God, how does God know that he's going to go and be refused by Pharaoh? And if Pharaoh is entirely and ultimately free to make any decision that he chooses, and he might actually be convinced to listen to Israel, how does God know that he will need to perform these many wonders upon him? God knows. He knows what these people will choose to do. He knows ahead of time. He knows perfectly well. And so he says in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and he will release his. There's a play on words here in the Hebrew. When God releases his hand against Pharaoh, Pharaoh will release his slaves to God. God is not only ever present with us, he knows all that will come to pass. And why is it so often that that just leads to troubling thoughts about the freedom of man and the foreknowledge of God? It should lead to great confidence and courage. That's where it should point us, the view of God, not simply an academic debate of how does human freedom and divine foreknowledge work, but it should lead to the realization that everything that happens in my life, God knows. God is grieved as we are grieved with the sin that comes in our life. But there is no hope in a God who simply sits back and can't believe what's happening. There is hope in a God who says, I know all things and they will, in the end, work out for good. I will bring them about and weave them together to bring glory to my name and joy to my people. We struggle in faith to believe, but we can put our confidence in a God who is always there and who knows all that is to come. He holds us in his strong arms and he guides our way with perfect foreknowledge and wisdom. This should give us courage and confidence and hope. And God continues. He knows exactly how it will play out and says in verse 21, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people. Kind of hard to see that coming. But they will be. So that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house, that is if there's an Egyptian living with Israelites in their home, for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and your daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Very possibly anticipating some of Moses' objections. How are we going to go out into the desert? How is this going to happen? How will they release us? Will there be any resource financially? It's not going to do them a whole lot of good out in the desert, but it does help them and aid them, probably in ways we don't have recorded in Scripture. But God will supply. Now people say, has God just got a, a nation of thieves here? 
that it? plundering Egypt and taking their stuff away from them? A couple of points. Number one, the Hebrew women will issue a request to the Egyptian women who will willingly respond. They're just asking. God will steer the hearts of the Egyptians to sow fear and perhaps even pity the Israelite women that they will give it these jewels to them willingly, this jewelry willingly. Secondly, According to the law of God who designs the universe and orders heaven and earth, in Deuteronomy 15, verses 13 through 14, when slaves are released, masters are to send them away with money to help them establish themselves as freemen. That is God's plan. That is His will. And in like manner, Israel deserved the wealth of Egypt, for Israel had served for many generations to build up Egypt. It was only right for the masters to give to the slaves money in compensation to let them leave with the ability to establish themselves elsewhere. So there is divine provision. Ultimately, neither the land of Canaan nor the jewelry of Egypt was earned by Israel, and that is part, I think, of the divine plan. They will go into a land that they did not build up, and they will receive jewelry that was not their own, so that in all things they will always look to God as their provider and never take pride in who they are and what they've accomplished. It will be a gift from God. So for 80 years, God has been preparing Moses to deliver Israel out of slavery. And on the verge of that deliverance, God orchestrates affairs so as to make it clear that the issue is not who Moses is, but who God is. God humbled Moses in the desert until he could have no confidence in himself, no confidence in the flesh. How does Moses go to Egypt? He does not go with an army. He does not need an education as such. He does not need political influence. What he needs is God. He needed to see and trust the God who is, the living and active Yahweh, who is ever present with his people and keeps his promises from one generation to another. He needed a vision of a holy God, not a pantheistic view of God or a pantheon of gods. What he needed was a precise and accurate orthodox view of God. And that is precisely what we need. I would have no confidence to stand before you and to proclaim this section of Scripture today if I weren't armed with that absolute bedrock conviction. Your view of God matters. It will define who you are it will take you where you are going. It will interpret every situation in your life. Your view of God is of utter importance. Who is He to you? We see in this section of Scripture that we should see that He is a God of history. We should understand that the promises of God to us don't just come to us out of the sky and are all about us. But the promises of God are connected to the promises to His people through all generations. Some more applicable than others, no doubt. But we hold to the promises of a God who has worked with all of His people through the ages, and it's this same God to whom we cling. 
The God who said to Abraham, I will bring your people back here 400 years later is the same God who issues promises to you in the word of God. And they're just as solid. They're just as real. Where do we find ourselves? Probably in some respects where Israel did during that long waiting period. It seems sometimes that God isn't here. It seems sometimes that so little has happened in our day. Where is the God of revival? Where is the God who meets us with miracle and change and transformation? He's there. He's always there. He does not always work exactly in the same way. There are long lulls in his operative powers on this earth, but he's there. And our knowledge of this God of history who promised to Abraham that a deliverer would come, this God is our God and his promises are solid. Our knowledge of him has to start with calling And I think, without wanting to twist too much out of this passage, I think that that calling would typically come with a sense of the fear of God. I think so often this is what is missing as people present the gospel to individuals today and say, come to God and come to know Him. Why wouldn't you? It's just a little addition and we're going to kind of tweak things here and give you a little Jesus and your life is going to be a little bit better than it's been before. There's no fear of God. There's no sense that I have sin that stands between me and God and alienates me from the one who has created the universe and in whose hand my soul rests. That I am by nature alienated from him and the object of his wrath, Ephesians 2. If we do not come with any sense of fear of God, we do not come to meet the true God. But when we come with a sense of fear that his judgment is real and his holiness is pure, then we can come to understand his grace and his mercy to forgive sinners. It all starts with God's calling. And like with Moses, very often it's not necessarily something that we search for. Sometimes God just comes and makes it clear who he is. But the first level of calling, and the most important, is to be called from death to life. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. There is a calling unto salvation that every one of us must embrace. That calling comes through the simple knowledge of who God is. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things who sent his son who is one with him yet took on human flesh to die on a cross in order to pay the penalty of human sin. He made the sacrifice of himself to provide the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And this same one, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead to defeat death in the power of the resurrection to overcome it by tasting it fully. Having come to die in the place of the sinner and having come to rise from the dead, Jesus now offers victory over death and sin to those who will acknowledge their sin, repent and turn to him in saving faith. 
having been called to this salvation grace. There is a calling upon our lives to serve God. And when we consider that, it is comforting to know here, isn't it, in Moses' experience, that it's not how great I am, but it's who God is. And I think as a church, we suffer on this point at places. I think every church does, but we're no different. We suffer on this point of thinking, there's really not much I can do for God. So often the reason is because we're all taken up with who we are. Now it is true that God gives unique gifts to various people to accomplish certain things for Him and His glory. It is true that we're not all made, as Paul would put it, a nose or an elbow or an arm or a leg. We all are different parts of the body and we need to have a sense of what God has called us to do. But so often I believe that the people of God are an untapped resource because they're all focused on themselves. And I know this struggle. I face it every day. As a pastor, I know, as Moses says, if there's anything I can identify here, it's with who am I? I don't know how to do the things God's called me to do. I don't know how to follow through and how to fulfill this work. You're not going to know how. But what we have to do and sense is that it's not about who I am. It's about who God is. And as we trust Him, we find that He's there. It's not all going to be easy. There's not some simple way to make it work. But as we venture and as we risk and as we set ourselves out to follow His plan, He is there and places us in His work. Because there is a deliverance project that's going on and He's called every last one of us who know Christ as Savior to be part of that project. Moses was called as a unique deliverer to take all of the people of Israel out of Egypt. We have one who was called Emmanuel, God with us, who was sent as the unique one to deliver us from sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as he delivers his people from the bondage of sin, Jesus calls those people to join his mission and his work and to pour out their lives in the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That says to us as his people, there should be individuals in our life who we are influencing for Christ. Now, I talk to two kinds of people here. Some of you are influencing people for Christ and you don't know it. And you need to stop and realize and think more carefully that this is part of the influence that I have for God. And there are others who maybe just need a kick in the backside. You just need to wake up and realize this life's just not about you making money and making everything work nicely in your life and just all about what you are and what everybody thinks of you. We're called to a project. We're called to a deliverance event we are called to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ into the lives of unbelievers and to deliver them from the bondage of sin. Remembering last week, we are saviors with a small s. We can't save anybody. It doesn't rest in us. It's all going to be about who God is and that He is with us. But with that having been said, we are saviors with a small s. And we need to use the abilities that God has given us, whatever they are, to be part of the deliverance project, leading people out of the bondage of sin. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is there 
He is with us. Emmanuel has come, God with us. And in Jesus Christ, we have all the power that we need. What we need is to rest in that power and to hold high the vision of a God who is there and who is ever present with his people to lead others out of the bondage of sin and to walk with them to the promised land. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we need you. There is a rebuke in this passage of Scripture for every last one of us who knows Christ as Savior. We need to be energized and to be reminded that you are with us and that we have been called to a high and holy calling to be your people and to walk in fellowship with you and to deliver others from the bondage of sin through your power and through your grace. I pray that each one of us would be concentrating, each one who knows you as Savior, that we would be thinking of individuals that we need to influence for Christ and perhaps rejoicing with those that we are. And we plead, Father, that others would join us here who have been delivered from the bondage of sin. Bring people to fear God and bring them to having feared him, to see his love and compassion and to embrace his saving faith, his saving grace. We pray, God, for any that have not entered into that faith that might be with us today. I pray that you'll draw them and show them of your mercy and your greatness and that you are the God who is there and who delivers and loves his people. We're not born as your people, but I pray that we'd be transformed to become your people that you bring to saving light those who need you as Savior. For us who know you, we rejoice and we thank you for your goodness. And we pray that you'll use us to your glory and to your honor.